In the late summer of 1995, yes, exactly 20 years ago, God caused a stirring in my soul. I went out and did a crazy thing. I bought a Bible. I bought a student study Bible because I wasn't really raised in a Christian home. I didn't really know much about the Bible. And what I liked about the student study Bible is at the beginning of each book in the Bible, it gave you kind of a, a brief introduction as to what that book was about. So I skimmed through a, bit, a few of the introductions until I came across the introduction to the book of Romans. And one of the things that caught my attention was that, it, that in this introduction it said, uh, if asked um, what book in the Bible uh, you would take with you uh, on a deserted island, uh, many, if not most Christians, would say it's the book of Romans. So with that, I began to read the book of Romans. And what was once dead words to me, um, I'd, I'd read, read, read some bits of scripture before, what was once dead words to me now became alive. God gave me life through these scriptures. And over the period of two months, I went from being an atheist to being a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, 20 years later, I get to preach this book of Romans. Today we begin a new sermon series on the book of Romans. And I ask and I pray that God would bless our study in the weeks and months ahead. Today we're looking at an introductory phase of the book of Romans. We're looking at Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And what we will see in an instant is that the Apostle Paul is all about the gospel. He lives and breathes the gospel of God. And he calls upon this new church in Rome to live and breathe the gospel of God. And guess what? We need to live and breathe the gospel of God. So let's begin. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow... By God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of 
of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we admit that we are dependent upon you uh, to powerfully work this salvation into the lives of your people. That salvation isn't just for some time in the past. It is ongoing for here and forevermore. We are dependent upon you and upon your word and upon your spirit and upon your son. May you give us eyes and ears this morning to hear afresh this gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a question for you to consider this morning. Actually, it's kind of two questions, but it's a rather serious question. And I, and I, I want you to seriously consider your answer. If someone were to rush in here right now and call out your name and say, come, follow me, I have the greatest of news for you, who would that person be? And what would it be that is the news you want to hear? Would it be your best friend? Would it be your boss? Perhaps your oncologist? Your financial advisor? Your real estate agent? in Maui. What is it you'd want to hear? That your retirement is secure, your cancer is cured, your promotion came through, that that soon there'll be a ring on your finger? What is the greatest good news you could hear? Now, some of you are a little more altruistic in your your great wishes and desires. Um, Perhaps you would your greatest news for you would be the, the end of war or the curing of cancer or the elimination of poverty or injustice. These are all good things. Don't get me wrong. But in our passage, the Apostle Paul proclaims the greatest of all good news. The word gospel means good news. The Greek word is euangelion. It literally means good news. Paul proclaims this euangelion, this good news, this gospel. Now, before we get much further, I need to caution you. Most of us here have been Christians, and many for at least some time, right? You know the gospel, at least on a certain level. You've heard it every week, right? Week in, week out. Perhaps, though, you've grown numb to it. You know you've grown numb to the gospel when, like, little things set you on edge. Or when anxious thoughts fill your head. You can know by looking at your checkbook. It shows that you buy all kinds of things to make you happy, but they're not things that really have anything to do with Christ and his kingdom. Or you can know when your prayer life is in a rut. Have you grown none to the gospel? It happens. You and I need the gospel. We are hopeless without it. We are triumphant with it. 
We need the gospel, and not just at some point in the past, but today and every day to come. We need to gaze upon it. We need to soak it in. We need to to come alive through it. So I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to ask you today to do something. Let's all start afresh. Let's all start from scratch. Act as if you know nothing about the gospel. Some of you here, you think you know what the gospel is, but you're not yet a Christian. You haven't yet identified with Christ, and you think you know what it's all about. I ask you to start over. Forget what you think you've learned. Those of you here today who do know the gospel, who consider yourself a Christian, I'm asking you to start over. Let's begin again. Let's start from scratch. Let's commit each Sunday going forward to gaze upon this gospel with fresh eyes and press it deep into our lives. Will you commit to that? Today's sermon is titled, God's Glorious Gospel. We're going to look at this introduction to Paul's letter to this young church in Rome. You know, Paul had never been there, as we, as we re- has read, right? He has never been there, yet he longs to go there so that the church may be built up. And, and how is it that he uh, longs to build them up? Well, it's through the gospel, God's glorious gospel. This morning, that's what we're going to look at, God's glorious gospel, what it is and what it does. What is the gospel? Remember, we're starting from scratch. Let's begin where Paul begins. He begins where? He begins with, he begins with God. This is God's gospel. In verse 1, he says that he is set apart for what? The gospel of God. You know, in the book of the Romans, when you strip out, of all, strip out all the filler words in the book of Romans, words like and and, and the, when you strip out all of those words, the most frequently used word in the book of Romans is the word God. Once every 46 words, you come upon the word God. Now, why so often? Why is it that when you strip out all the filler, the meat that is left is God? Well, it's because it is God who is relentless in his pursuit of people. God longs for our eyes to be lifted from the filler of this world so that we can gaze upon the one true thing that gives us hope and happiness and joy, which is him, which is himself. God knows what, our, what fallen man needs. He knows that we are people who run around, preoccupied with anything else but him. It's true, isn't it? We can fix our eyes on all kinds of filler. For you, what's, what's your filler? What are the good or maybe not so good things that you focus on that takes your attention away from God himself, who is to be our focus? In the book of Romans, God draws our attention up to him. And I don't know about you, but I need that. Now, One thing we need to grow out of is this understanding that the gospel is something that God simply does for us. No, the gospel is something that God does first and foremost for himself. Yes, we are beneficiaries of the gospel. But understand this, long before the gospel ever became good news for fallen mankind, it was first and foremost good news to God himself. This is God's gospel. God delights in the gospel. It pleases him. Cast from your mind 
any notion that God reluctantly forgives sinners. No, we are the reluctant ones. We're the ones who repeatedly say, no, I don't need rescue. We're like that frog that I found in my pool this way, struggling to get out. It was frantically swimming up against the coping, hopeless to save himself. I came to offer rescue, but as soon as I lowered down my hand to to pick the frog out of the pool, it swam to the bottom. He didn't want my rescue, but he got it anyway. You want to know how the story ends, right? The gospel is God's gospel. Whether you want rescue from God or not, whether you rejoice in the gospel or not, God does. Comprehend this. In heaven right now, there are countless throngs of angels gathered around God, delighting in God's glorious gospel. Their affections are fixated upon his all-surpassing glory of his grace. And they are in wonder with how he is powerfully working out this salvation for people who are rebellious against him. Oh, that we would have eyes to see the, the glory of the gospel. So it's God's good news. We also need to see that the gospel is God new, good news. It's, God good, it's God's good news uh, to remedy our bad news. Beginning next week, we're going to dig deep into how bad off we are as human beings. And for some of you, it's going to be really, really hard. I invite you just to stick with it, okay? But is it not true? Good news can only be good news if there is some sort of bad news that at least threatens your good news, right? The bad news that God's glorious gospel addresses is that human beings are are now no longer, we no longer enjoy fellowship with our creator. A rift has occurred. The word Paul uses here and throughout the book of Romans and and other writers use in the New Testament is the word righteousness. It's dikaiosune in the Greek. It's It's a very relational word. Think about when things are right between you and a family member or between you and your your teacher or you and your boss or between you and the government, right? You have a right standing. There is nothing held against you. There are no walls or barriers in that relationship. There is harmony and peace and mutual flourishing. That's what righteousness is. The bad news that the gospel addresses is our lack of righteousness or rightness of relationship with God. And understand this, God is a relational God. God is a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The trinity enjoys perfect rightness of relationship within the Godhead. None in the Godhead has ever offended any other. (laughs) There are no walls or barriers between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They enjoy perfect rightness of relationship. God is a relational God. And he has made mankind in his image that we may relate with him, that we may reflect his glory in this creation, that we may relate um, without any barriers to other people made in his image. But our relationship with God and with others has been torn, and man cannot remedy the situation. That's the bad news. But the good news is God can and does rescue us through his Son, Verse 2, Paul says that he was set apart for the gospel of God. And then in verse 3, we read that the gospel of God concerns 
his son. And then further on we read, well, that is none other than Jesus Christ our Lord. And, and we read that God has been promising this long before Jesus came on the scene, that the prophets were talking about God's glorious grace and salvation that was to come. And that's why Jesus himself was able to say, you know, the Old Testament, all those prophets, all of the law, all of Moses, guess what? They were talking about me. It all spoke about me, longing for me to come in to this world. So Jesus is the fulfillment of God's glorious gospel. The eternal divine Son of God became human in order to fulfill God's gracious plan of salvation. Jesus came and lived the life we should have lived in perfect relationship, in rightness of relationship with his Father. He came and died for our sins. He took his, our sins upon himself and then gave us access to the Father, a rightness of relationship. He tore down the barriers. He tore down the walls that were hindering a proper relationship for us with God. And therefore, all who trust in him, who believe in him, experience now this rightness of genuine relationship with the creator of the universe. And Christ, not only that, that's pretty good news, but check this out. Christ has promised that one day in the future he will return. And he's not just going to raise his followers from the dead and give us new and exciting life. He's going to recreate the entire cosmos. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more wars. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more crying. There will be no more injustice or poverty. It will all be gone. Is that not good news? No, is that not glorious news? Is that not the most glorious news ever? Is that not such glorious news that it takes priority over any other good news you could possibly long for here on earth? Everything gets wrapped up in this gospel. Either it gets burned away because what you want really isn't holy or good, or it gets wrapped up in this gospel of grace. That's what the gospel is. Now for what it does. When you consider what the gospel does, have this word in mind, newness. The gospel makes you new. Consider Paul's words elsewhere. Perhaps you're familiar with them. 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciles us to himself. You see that? We pick up on this newness all throughout this passage. What I want us to first see is that the gospel makes us new and that it sets us apart. But before we can do that, we need to see that the gospel really first and foremost is for all people. Paul makes this clear. Verse 5, he says, it's for the sake of his name among all nations. All nations, by God's grace, are made recipients of God's gospel. We read in verse 16, it's not just for the Jew, it's for the Greeks, right? Uh, Trust me, back then that was people in conflict, all right? Uh, And then in verse 13, Paul seeks to harvest among the Gentiles. Now, the word Gentiles is the Greek word ethnos. It can be translated Gentiles or nations, depending upon the context. So the gospel is for people from every nation. It does not play favorites. It does not discriminate. It's not just for the smart ones. Listen, verse 14. It's for the Greeks and the barbarians. You know, uh, It's for the wise and the foolish. All right? I don't know which one you are. All right? I know you probably think I'm wise, right? No. I'm foolish. All right. The good news is that the gospel is for people of every place. 
of any social strata of intelligence or unintelligence. That's how good the gospel is. It's for all. But now that we've made that point clear, we must see that the gospel creates a special people, a people set apart. Check out verse 6. Paul finally turns his attention to the Christians in Rome. How does he address them? He says, you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. My friends, understand this. This is God's gospel. He's the one who calls out into the world. We like to think that we human beings are calling up to God, right? No, he is the one who calls down first. He calls to us. And he calls individuals out of all nations to be set apart as his treasured people. You know, the, our English word church comes uh, eventually from the, originally from the Greek word uh, ekklesia. It literally means called out ones. If you're a Christian here this morning, it's because God has called out to you and brought you into his set-apart people. It's no accident. Now, I really enjoy how Paul describes the church. What does, he, what does he say there? He says, we are those who belong to Jesus Christ. Is that new to you? Have you, have you really picked up on that phrase before? Paul is saying that God has called us to belong to Jesus Christ. Yes, if you're a Christian, um, it's true that Christ is yours. But more importantly, you are his. And please know this. To Christ, you aren't some out-of-fashion dress, you know, put away in mothballs in a closet. You're not some set of obsolete golf clubs collecting dust up in the attic. You are his treasured possession. He gave his life for you. How can you think anything else? And yet at times we do, which is why we need the gospel. We need to be reminded daily that Christ in his love for us uh, has purchased us, that God has set us apart, that we now belong to Christ. Do you see yourself that way? Our being set apart continues in verse 7. You know, there were hundreds of thousands of people living in Rome at the time, but in verse 7, Paul singles out, of all those hundreds of thousands, he singles out the church there. And what does he say? He says to the church in Rome, um, he says, to all those in Rome, verse 7, who are loved by God, and once again, called to be saints. He says, you are so loved by God that he's called you to be saints. Now, some of you think that, uh, that, that saints are like the really good Christians, right? But that, that's a fallacy. That's a falsehood. Uh, that's not true. Um, if you belong to Christ, you are a saint. If you are a Christian, uh, you are by, by definition a saint. Why? Because the, the word there is hagios in the Greek. It means to be holy or to be set apart as sacred. Just like the ordinary bowls in utensils that were used in the temple of God, just as they were set apart from their ordinary use to their holy use by the sprinkling of blood and of water, so too ordinary people are set apart by the sprinkling and cleansing of Christ's blood for special purposes of God. Christian, you've been set apart, you've been made holy by God for for him and for his purposes in this world. The glorious gospel. 
The gospel also sets us apart for a new way of living today. We see this in the last two verses of our passage. This is really the main theme of the book of Romans, verses 16 and 17, the main theme here. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, why would Paul say he's not ashamed of the gospel? Well, it's because the gospel uh, is offensive. I spent some time this week like, come, trying to come up with the different ways in which the gospel is offensive, and then I came across a list from Tim Keller. So I'll just use his words. How does that sound? All right. Uh, so here we go. He has four ways the gospel is offensive. First, the gospel. Listen closely. The gospel, by telling us that our salvation is free and undeserved, is really insulting. It tells us that we are such spiritual failures that the only way to gain salvation is for it to be a complete gift. This offends moral and religious people who think their decency gives them advantage over less moral people. Follow that? Number two, the gospel is also really insulting by telling us that Jesus died for us. It tells us that we are so wicked that that only the death of the Son of God could save us. This offends the modern cult of self-expression and the popular belief in the innate goodness of humanity. Three, the gospel, by telling us that trying to be good and spiritual isn't enough, thereby insists that no, quote, good person could be saved. This offends the modern notion that any nice person anywhere can find God in his own way. We don't like losing our autonomy. And finally, fourth, the gospel tells us that our salvation was accomplished by Jesus' suffering and serving, not conquering and destroying. And that following him means to suffer and serve with him. This offends people who want salvation to be an easy life. It also offends people who want their lives to be safe and comfortable. Gospel is offensive. But Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God. Um, The Greek word translated power here is is dunamis, from which we get derived the word dynamite. Yeah. Uh, And so in using this word power, Paul wants us to understand something. He wants us to understand that the gospel isn't a man-made philosophy, nor is it a life game plan that you expertly implement. No, it is the power of God for salvation. And Paul says that God's salvation is able to powerfully work in our lives, but how? He says it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Salvation is a gift of God's grace that is available to all who would but admit their need and receive it. And so when you hear the gospel and you believe, it's, it's as if a fuse has been lit in your life. That fuse is your faith. And when God gracious, graciously ignites your faith, his powerful salvation works in you. Faith alone brings this about. But it brings about a great power, power to transform us. How so? Verse 17 is is very, very helpful here. It's important for us to kind of understand what it's saying. Many people think that verse 17 is kind of a summary of the gospel. 
But in fact, it's actually a blueprint for the new way of living that we experience because the power of God is already saving us. Here's how we thrive with this new life in Christ. There's a thrice repeated word in verse 17. What is it? Faith. The righteousness of God is revealed or pressed into our lives by faith. Not faith in ourselves, but faith or trust in Christ and what he's done for us. It's important for you to understand that when the powerful gospel of God comes into your life, when it becomes a reality in your life, not only are you declared not guilty because Christ has taken your sins upon himself. That's, that's pretty darn good. But, this is what Christians often miss, but you are also given Christ's righteousness. A righteousness you don't own, you don't deserve, becomes yours. You now stand in Christ's righteousness. Martin Luther called this an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness outside of ourselves. This righteousness is not our own. It's Jesus' righteousness. Sinclair Ferguson said these insightful words. Listen closely. As I stand in God's presence and he looks at me, I hear him say, where have I seen that righteousness before? Come near. I recognize it now. That's my son's righteousness you were wearing. Enter. You are welcome and safe here. Christian, Jesus doesn't just take your sin upon himself, as good as that is. He also gives you his perfect record, his perfect relationship with the Father. He places his righteousness upon you. Now, tell me, is that not great news? Is that not glorious news? And this gospel news changes us in so many ways. Christian, let this sink in. Your identity right now, where you sit, is not wrapped up in your moral performance. Whether you succeed or fail. Christian, your relationship with your Heavenly Father isn't dependent upon whether you succeed or fail in your daily walk. What do I mean? Well, isn't it true that we can have days, those days where we start off really well, we wake up, we got our coffee going, it smells good, uh, we're reading scripture, we have a really prolonged time of prayer. And isn't it possible on those days to feel like, well, we've kind of done what's expected, and well, God surely can bless me today. Some of you may be thinking, well, isn't that how it is? <laughs> no. When we live this way, let me ask you this. When we live this way, are we not somehow believing that God's blessings are at least partially earned by our obedience and spiritual disciplines? And my friends, that's not living by faith. That's living by works. And isn't it true we can also have those days, and maybe we have them more often than not, uh, begins by oversleeping, 
and then getting uh, irritated and angry as we go to school or uh, drive to work. And then do we not on those days somehow feel like, you know, God's just going to withhold any sort of goodness towards me or blessing. I just don't deserve it today. Do you know how times feel that way? Is it just me? When we live this way, we're not walking by faith. That's a legalistic way of approaching God. But I hope you see that's not the way of the gospel. See, Jesus just doesn't take your slate or a dry erase board. He just doesn't take it and wipe it clean. Christian, listen to me. He just doesn't take it and wipe it clean. He destroys it. You see, Christians think that Jesus cleans my record and then now it's up to me to, to do the right things in order to maintain this relationship with God. And we go up and down depending upon how well we've done today or the past week or what have you. But Christian, Christ has taken your record and smashed it and he's given you his slate. And so when you try to do these little things, to, to little brownie points to earn your way to God, there's nothing, there's nothing to record it on. <laughs> And when you fall short and you, you don't have that prayer time you really wanted to have or you get angry at somebody else, guess what? There is no slate for that to be recorded upon as well. Now, does your gospel include that reality? Does this reality soak into your life so that you walk in this freedom of this grace? That is why Paul is, is saying here that the righteous live by faith. Not faith that they will do it right or not faith that they're going to muster up but faith that Christ has done everything for you. He's he's taken your record and crushed it and smashed it and given you his. And we're to walk in that reality. Can you see how freeing that is? See how if you just would believe that and press it into your life, it would change the way in which you relate to God on a daily basis? It's a powerful salvation that is ours by faith. All who belong to Christ Jesus. If you want to read more on this, I, I encourage you, get a book. Get a couple of them, maybe in groups and study it. It's Jerry Bridges' book, Transforming Grace. There's a copies on the back shelf. I hope they're all gone. Maybe, they're, maybe we don't have any left. I don't know. Adriana, do we have some over there? I hope so. Uh, Transforming Grace, Jerry Bridges. One of my top five favorite Christian books of all time. Okay? Get it. Study it. It's, it just opens this up for you. But for now... Let us delight in the fact that the righteous live by faith in the finished work of Christ. And so do you see now that the gospel, the gospel, listen up, the gospel isn't just for that day you believed. It's for today and every other day. God's salvation towards you is ongoing through his son, Jesus Christ. I also want us to see that this transforms not just our relationship with God, but with others. We need each other desperately. Do you find it interesting that Paul says he's so eager to get to Rome? I mean, it's a long ways to get there, right? I mean, it's a, it's a lot of hoofing it. It's a lot of getting on crazy boats and getting shipwrecked, you know? Oh, and by the way, do you know how he eventually ended up there? He wanted to go there for so long. He ended up going there in chains. He was arrested. He pleaded his case to the Roman emperor, and he was taken to Rome in chains. He was stuck in a prison. He finally got to see the Romans <laughs> from a prison cell. And we know through Eusebius and other historians that it's not written in Scripture, but Paul was beheaded in, in Rome. Nero 
before Nero died, he took Paul's life, cut his head off. Paul eventually got there. But he's eager to get to Rome. <laughs> Why? Okay, I don't mean to depress you. All right. Why was he so... You could say, well, he, was, he really wanted to get there to, to help these people, right? Yeah, that's true. That's what we see there. But when you pick through Paul's words, you realize that Paul knows something about the gospel that we need to impress upon ourselves. Even the most mature Christian needs the mutual encouragement of other Christians. We need to bring the gospel to bear with other Christians. We need our faith to rub with others' faith, to mutually encourage each other. That's what Paul says in verse 11. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And if you don't understand what that means, both yours and mine. Paul has a, is, a, is an apostle. He's got a lot of truths to teach them, a lot of spiritual gifts to give them. But mostly he longs for the mutual encouragement that only comes when you're gathered with other Christians. Paul says, I believe God will use you to encourage me. Christian, understand this. There are some spiritual gifts... Listen up, there are some spiritual gifts that God has in heaven for you that can only be received in Christian community. You will not receive them or even know of them if you isolate yourself. You need your brothers and sisters and they need you. These gifts we have are to be shared Which means if you don't have some close Christian friend that you share your life with, then you're regularly missing gifts from God meant to bring you joy and strength. I don't want to point any fingers. I don't want you to wallow in your pews, but just interrogate your own life. Do you purposely make room in your life for other Christians? Do you regularly meet with them? Do you challenge each other? Do you point each other to Christ? Do you have lists of their prayer requests? Do you spend time pressing the gospel into each other's lives? You might think you're a mature Christian and you can get by on your own. Guess what? That's really an immature way to live. If anyone was mature enough to live without others, it would have been the Apostle Paul, right? He's a pretty squared away guy. But here he is, longing to be with Christians he's never met so that he can be mutually strengthened and encouraged with them. So the gospel transforms how we relate to God and to others. One last thing. We're going to wrap up. The gospel changes our affections and ambitions. At least it should. Paul uses an interesting verse, uh, phrase in verse 5. He says, uh, the obedience of faith. What in the world is the obedience of faith? What, what does it mean? It means that the proper response to those who've been set free by Christ is to now freely serve Christ. The Bible repeatedly talks about the fact that before you come to faith in Christ, you are in bondage. Bondage to sin, bondage to the devil. People without God, they think they're free, but in fact they're, they're in chains to whatever they think will save them, whether it's a relationship or work or success. 
Until Christ sets you free, you're in bondage to some other God substitute that you're counting on saving you. But when Christ sets you free, he doesn't set you out into the pasture so you can just like, you know, uh, forage around and make a nice little life for yourself. No, the gospel should produce in us an obedience of faith that causes us to joyfully and wholeheartedly submit ourselves to Christ's loving rule over our lives. That's why Paul begins this letter by saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. The word here translated servant is doulos. It means slave. If Jesus is our savior, then he is our rightful king. And we've been freed to serve him. Our allegiance is to be properly given to him. And so to live by faith means that we are no longer on the throne of our own life, but rather the Lord and Savior who's given us all to rescue us is now the one who is on the throne of our lives. Instead, we bow to King Jesus and we look to him for our marching orders. We pray for him to give us understanding as to how he wants us to go about building his kingdom and his church. For Paul... He was set apart to be an apostle, to bring this gospel message to the Gentiles 2,000 years ago. What is it for you? Is Jesus actively directing your life, the big decisions and the small? Or do you allow Jesus only partial access to your life? Christian, do you see your, your life now as belonging to Christ? Or is your life... Your life. Have you come up with your life plan and expect God to stamp it good? After all, you've been doing the right things. If this is how you live, you're not living by faith. When we live by faith, we live with a new great affection, and it's not ourselves. Our great affection now is lavished on Christ, who has given us all for us. He's now set us free. He is our King. He is our Lord. And therefore, we live by faith when we no longer come to him with our agenda. We no longer list the favorable terms and conditions by which we will serve. We no longer will say, well, God, I will do this so long as you fill in the blank. No, instead we ask, God, your will be done in and through us, no matter what that is. And because we walk by faith and not by sight, because we love our Lord and desire nothing less than to please him, and fulfill all of his desires for us, we accept whatever he hands us. When we walk by faith, we no longer demand that Jesus give us a happy, compartmentalized life of relative ease. Is it apparent now? I hope it is. We need the gospel, right? We need the daily reminding of what Christ has done for us and continues to do for us. We need the gospel so that we can recenter our lives on Christ. We need to meditate upon God's glorious gospel so that that no false gospel can intrude upon us. We began this morning with the question, what's the greatest good news you'd like to hear and, and, and who would you like to tell it to you? I hope you're come to see, or at least beginning to see, that the greatest of news, well, it must come from our Creator. And it cannot just simply be 
good news for me. That's got to be good news for the whole world. And it cannot be expensive. In fact, how about if it's free? I like that price. This morning, Paul has shown us a glimpse of God's glorious gospel. It's God's good news, news that remedies the baddest of news. God sent his son in our place to live the life we should have lived. And so he died in our place and he rose from the dead so that that all that is his is now ours who trust in him. Jesus has done more than take your sin. He's given you his righteousness. You've been set apart by God. We belong to Jesus. We are now his treasured possession. And we now rightly bow and submit our lives to him. And so as we come towards the Lord's Supper, may God's glorious, powerful gospel work its way in us that we may walk by faith in the righteousness of Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Um, we confess, we, we're just scratching the surface But what we scratched is so good. And we thank you uh, for this message. We pray that you would expand our hearts to a greater, deeper understanding of this gospel. That we may may see that we are righteous in your sight. Not by our own works, but by Christ who loves us and died for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.